Hi, I'm Panicky in the UK, and this is Panicky Pictures. <coughs> so, as I'm recording this, it is currently Robert De Niro's birthday in his time zone. I assume he's in New York, he usually is. Uh, and it is my birthday in my time zone, because uh, we're a day apart. How cool is that? And uh, by the time you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, it'll probably be my next birthday, because they are being super slow about approving this podcast. I don't know why. Uh, I, I don't know if I did something to offend them. But if you're listening to this on Spotify, or Pocket Casts, or Google Podcasts, or uh, any of those other services, then uh, alright. Uh, anyway, uh, today, to celebrate both my birthday and Bobby's, um, I'm going to be talking about Midnight Run, one of my favourite films of all time. I had a significant birthday last year, and I did plan to put on a screening of Midnight Run, uh, you know, like hire out a cinema screen or whatever, and that didn't end up happening. And then I thought maybe I would do it this year, uh, and that didn't end up happening either for some reason. Um, but I watched it by myself on Netflix, which was also great. Actually, I don't think that I have seen it since 2018, maybe. Um, I started my Letterboxd account in, uh, at the beginning of 2019, and I never logged it. Um, I marked it as watched. Uh, I have watched it many times, but I never logged it. So I guess it's been maybe a couple of years since I've seen it, which is incredible. And I don't know exactly when it was that I first saw it, but I do know that it was after I saw this. Who wants to come watch Midnight Run yeah. with director's commentary on? Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. First yeah. one there gets to adjust the picture settings. Oh, yes. The factory tent setting is always too high. The factory tent setting is always too high. Yeah, so I think like a lot of people probably of my generation and younger, people who were born after Midnight Run came out, if only slightly after in my case, uh, the first I ever heard of it was actually on the Rick and Morty episode, Morty Night Run. So I probably saw that either 2015 or 2016. Uh, I know the episode premiered in August of 2015, but I might not have seen it until whenever it premiered in the UK. Um, anyway, so that kind of prejudiced me, I think, a little bit against the film, because I thought, oh, it's a Jerry film, and I'm not a Jerry. Why would I like this movie? And uh, I think since um, I heard Dan Harmon talking about the film on Harmontown, and he seems like a fan, so I think that actually it was more of a kind of self-deprecating little reference than it was actually kind of trying to paint the movie with the jerry brush. But that was that was what I thought of it, you know, I expected it to be a kind of, I don't know, like a mediocre action movie that would appeal to middle-aged men, which I guess, I mean, it is... It's not mediocre, but it is an action movie that would appeal to middle-aged men. Sure, I just think it has much broader appeal than that, and is much smarter than that makes it sound. And I think it was kind of similar preconceptions that stopped me from watching Die Hard for so many years. I first saw Die Hard, 
don't know, I was probably like 18, 19, uh, somewhere in that region. I know that I was doing my undergrad degree and I loved it, you know, but I think prior to that, I just thought that it was a very kind of macho movie and not for me. Um, so the way that I ended up seeing Midnight Run actually is that it was on, I believe it was the Paramount channel, uh, which is or was a freeview channel in the UK that just showed a bunch of movies. Um, I no longer have a TV license, so I don't know if it's still going. Um, but I, it, I just kind of was flipping channels and I came across this movie and I was immediately hooked. And I think the only other time that that's actually happened is when I was flipping through channels once and I came across the beginning of Showgirls uh, on uh, Film 4 very late at night. And I thought, what is this movie? I'm immediately hooked. Uh, turned out to be Showgirls. I will be talking about Showgirls in a subsequent episode and why it is great and misunderstood. Uh, but let's stay on topic for now. So I'm flipping through channels. I come across this movie and it would have been in the first five minutes or so. It's all in that kind of cold open um, that I first started watching it. Uh, and I was just immediately kind of enthralled by it. I don't quite know what it was. I've never been the biggest Robert De Niro fan. I think when I was younger, I used to think that you had to either like Robert De Niro or Al Pacino, and I was firmly in the Al Pacino camp. Obviously, that's ridiculous, but I don't know, I got this idea in my head, so... I don't know, I've just never been the biggest De Niro fan. I really actually like him in his more comedic roles. Um, so things like Brazil and Stardust, things like that. And uh, again, I think it's his more kind of macho roles that maybe turn me off a little bit. Whereas I think that in Midnight Run, he's kind of really straddling the two because he's playing quite a macho character and he's generally playing kind of the straight man in what's a very funny film and I think Charles Grodin is more the comedian here but it just really works for me so the first time I saw it uh, I was just bowled over I thought it was so great and then whenever it would turn up on the Paramount channel which was probably every few months because they tended to just put things in uh, you know heavy rotation I would watch it again um, so I think there was a period where it was coming up on that channel maybe every two or three months and I would watch it every time. Um, I've also read the screenplay. Um, I have read Paul Manette's novelization of this movie. What I have not done is I have not gone and sought out any of Martin Brest's other films or any of George Gallo's other films. So uh, Martin Brest's last two films uh, were uh, Jiggly, uh, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, um, in 2003, and prior to that, Meet Joe Black in 1998, uh, both of which, well, I, I, I haven't seen Jiggly, um, I've heard a lot about it, I have seen Meet Joe Black, and that is a hell of an interesting film. Um, probably not what I would have expected from the director of Midnight Run. Um, however, um, prior to Midnight Run, he did do Beverly Hills Cop, and uh, right after he did Scent of a Woman. Um, and then in between, he produced a film called Josh and Sam, and Sam is spelled 
I mean, it's spelled S-A-M, but it's uh, an initialism. So I'm guessing that Sam is maybe some kind of robot. So, uh, yeah, interesting. You know, I might not uh, check that out right away, but uh, I will look into Beverly Hills Cop. I think that might be probably the closest thing that Brust has done that kind of resembles Midnight Run in terms of kind of uh, tone. And for George Gallo, um, he has, he's done a lot more. Um, his first script was Wise Guys, his first produced script was Wise Guys, Midnight Run was only his second, which is kind of amazing, um, and then he also did Bad Boys, which is one that, again, I haven't seen, but I feel like that's the kind of thing that is probably closest to, uh, Midnight Run, although, oh boy, it is directed by Michael Bay, I don't know, I don't know, uh, we'll see. Uh, maybe I'll check that out. Uh, he did The Whole Ten Yards as well, which it is entirely possible that I have seen that, but I may only have seen The Whole Nine Yards. So yeah, so I haven't really kind of explored these guys' uh, filmography a huge amount. It's very much this one collaboration between the two of them that really kind of captured my imagination and has become pretty much one of my favourite films of all time. So, if you... Uh, are not familiar with the film, if you haven't seen it, first of all, I really recommend watching it. Um, if you're in the UK, it is available to watch on Netflix. It's also pretty widely available um, as a secondhand DVD in like a British Heart Foundation shop or whatever. Um, if you're in the US, I think it's slightly harder to track down on streaming services, but again, I imagine that the DVD is pretty widely available, and obviously, you know, you can rent it from uh, wherever, from your preferred video-on-demand platform. So I really recommend seeking it out um, and watching it. It's a really fantastic film. If you are not planning to watch it, I will just warn you that I will be uh, spoiling the plot. So if that bothers you, then stop listening now and come back later if you want. But just to fill you in on the basic plot, uh, essentially Robert De Niro plays Jack Walsh, who is a bounty hunter and is a former Chicago cop now living in LA. And uh, he's put on the trail of a guy called Jonathan the Duke Mardukas. And he's a kind of Robin Hood figure who's embezzled millions of dollars from the mob and given most of it to charity. Uh, but Eddie Moscone, the bail bondsman, needs him back in LA by Friday night. So Robert De Niro, Jack Walsh, has got to track him down. Now, meanwhile... Uh, the mob, uh, and the mob boss is a guy called Jimmy Serrano, who actually has a little bit of a history with Jack Walsh, as it turns out. They're very keen to make sure that, uh, the Duke does not go up on the witness stand. On the other hand, the FBI, including Alonzo Mosley, played by Yafet Kato, uh, they are very keen to make sure that he does. So, Jack Walsh has got to go to New York and put the Duke on a plane to LA while being chased down by both the mob and the FBI. But there is one major problem, and that is that the Duke is afraid of flying. So, the two men embark on a uh, madcap dash across America, 
and uh, also to New Zealand. Um, not canonically, but they did film a scene in New Zealand, uh, which I imagine inflated the budget uh, quite a lot, while trying to flee both the mob and the feds. So there are a lot of moving parts in this film, and I think that it does a really good job of just keeping all those wheels turning without losing sight of what's really important, which is character. And actually one of the things that really struck me on this rewatch was how good it is, even on the minor characters. So you've got Joey and Tony, um, who are two of Serrano's kind of goons who are following Walsh and the Duke around. Uh, and the characterization of these two guys is just so great. It's so funny. They have really good comedic chemistry together. And then you have other minor characters. You have Sydney, um, who is this uh, lawyer who's uh, constantly giving Jimmy Serrano legal advice. You've got Jerry, who works for Eddie Moscone, but is also informing the mob of uh, the whereabouts of Jack and John. So even these minor characters are so well-drawn and well-performed, and they actually bring a lot of the humour to the film. But you also have this fantastic chemistry between um, Charles Grodin playing uh, the Duke and, of course, Robert De Niro playing Jack Walsh. I don't know how well they actually got on. Uh, I think they had very different acting styles. So De Niro was very method, um, and Grodin <laughs> really wasn't. Um, and I think one thing that probably pissed Grodin off uh, a fair amount is that uh, he actually had permanent scarring on his wrists from wearing handcuffs throughout the shoot, and there were prop handcuffs uh, for him to wear that were made out of rubber, but De Niro encouraged him to wear the real steel handcuffs because uh, it was more method. So he ended up with permanent scarring from that, which I'm sure he was overjoyed about. Um, and I think that that potential animosity kind of went both ways. Um, De Niro, I think... I believe I read that De Niro was upset with the way that Grodin was kind of mugging in a scene between uh, De Niro and um, his wife and daughter, rather Jack Walsh and his wife and daughter, which is actually a really moving scene and I think is kind of the emotional heart of the whole thing. Um, I think that in the final cut, actually, Grodin isn't too bad. Um, I don't think that he really undermines the emotion of that scene, but I think that maybe in, you know, other takes... De Niro felt that he was overdoing it a little bit. I do have to say that one of my favourite moments in the film actually is a moment of Grodin mugging, which is when Walsh is trying to buy a bus ticket and his card is being declined, and you've just got Grodin kind of in the background and he's just like making eye contact with the woman at the counter and just rolling his eyes and kind of winking and giving her the thumbs up. She has a great line. Speaking of minor characters who uh, really get to shine, she has a fantastic line um, where uh, Walsh tries to flash the FBI badge that he lifted off Alonzo Mosley, Yafet Kato's character. Um, and he tries to convince her that he's an FBI agent and he's transporting a prisoner. And she says, 
Jack Walsh is not the name on that badge, sir. Now, do you want me to call the FBI, or do you want to pay in cash? It's an absolutely great line. I did not do it justice, but um, it it was one of the uh, really big laughs in the movie for me. And uh, Grodin really adds to that scene, I think. And actually, a couple of the other standout scenes in the movie are largely improvised, with Grodin taking the lead. So, for example... The litmus configuration scene, which I really think is pretty much the funniest in the whole film, that was almost entirely improvised. And I mean, I think he, you know, just watching the scene, you can see that Grodin is very much kind of the point man on that. And another great scene is the one in the boxcar. Uh, and again, you know, a lot of that was improvised. Um, De Niro brought some of that. Um, He kind of invented a whole backstory around his watch and his kind of business with the watch that you see going on throughout the movie. Um, So both Grodin and De Niro were kind of um, bringing these improvisational flourishes in different ways. Um, Grodin, I think, in a much more kind of loose way, and De Niro through this um, very kind of dedicated method acting and building up of his character's backstory. So I think that even though the two of them have very different performance styles, they complement each other quite well. As always with any big movie, um, many people were considered uh, for each of the roles. Uh, Dustin Hoffman uh, was one person who was considered for the role of Jack Walsh. Um, Harrison Ford was another. Um, The two that I've heard mentioned most frequently for uh, the Duke are Robin Williams, who I think would have been interesting. I can picture him in that role. Uh, On the one hand, uh, I think that Robin Williams' performance style is, if anything, even muggier than Grodin's, so possibly would have been more of a contrast with De Niro's. On the other hand, I think that my impression of Robin Williams uh, from what I hear about him is that he was uh, pretty delightful to work with and a really nice guy, and my impression uh, of Charles Grodin is not so much. Um, So, I don't know, maybe they would have had a better time on set, but maybe the as I said, the kind of animosity and the contrast between Grodin and De Niro actually really works for the film. As for Cher, I don't know. I I mean, they certainly would have been making it more um, obviously uh, a romance, more kind of blatantly. I think as it is, you can certainly read things into the film as it stands. Um, I think that the scene where... Uh, Jack gives the Duke his watch. Um, And again, I mean, I guess that probably wasn't in the script, right? Because uh, it was De Niro who who came up with that backstory and the significance of the watch. So I guess that that was something uh, that was kind of devised on set. So I, I mean, you know, it's difficult for me not to read kind of homoerotic undertones there. I think there's also the tagline, um... Uh, the beginning of a beautiful friendship, which obviously hops back to Casablanca, and the ending of Midnight Run actually does kind of reflect the ending of Casablanca, right? But with um, 
Jack as the uh, Humphrey Bogart character and uh, the Duke as the Ingrid Bergman character. Maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into it, but I think that's there. So, sure, I mean, you know, making the Duke a woman, you know, they could have actually gone much further with the romantic implications. Maybe that could have been interesting. And certainly, you know, this is a film that could do with more women in it, although I do think that the, as I said, I think the scene with Jack's wife and daughter, who are kind of estranged from him, is very much the emotional heart of the film. I think that it packs a real punch, even though it's, you know, in terms of running time, actually quite short. This is a film that could do with more women. I don't know if making it a romance it's hard to say, because one film that I often compare this to in my mind is Starman from four years earlier, another film which I absolutely love, will watch any time it comes up on TV, kind of has a similar plot and has this similar thing of kind of allegiances shifting over the course of the film, and in that film I think the romance works really well and I'm really invested in it, so it's perfectly possible that that could have worked again here. Um, but I just have a hard time picturing how it would have worked with a woman in that role. Obviously, you know, they would have to make changes to the script. I think one of the things is that um, several characters over the course of this movie kind of get physically violent with the Duke, and you would really have to tone that down. And I think that that would very much kind of change the tone of the film. But that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. It would just make it a very different movie. So I'm glad that this is the movie that it is. But it is interesting to speculate on how different it might have been with other people in those roles. So speaking of people getting physical with the Duke, um, I read an interview with Adam Scott about this movie recently, which actually made me realise something that I'd never really picked up on before, which is this convention the movie uses where if you punch somebody in the face, they are knocked out cold immediately with one punch, and then you can just kind of cut them around, um, and they, you know, maybe very gradually regain consciousness. And obviously, you know, this is such an unrealistic convention, but I just always took it for granted every time I watched the film, I think just because I'd become so immersed in it, and it it kind of establishes this grammar and this language that you just tune into and you kind of accept stuff like that, but I did really notice it this time around, and it happened so many times throughout the course of the movie, and I just never thought to even question it before. I think just because it does it so effortlessly and so well, or at least for me, I'm so emotionally involved uh, in the movie that I'm not really nitpicking those little things. And finally, the last thing that really stood out to me on this watch was the Danny Elfman score. I think that I tend to associate Elfman, I mean obviously he uh, he wrote the Simpsons theme tune, which is great, but I tend to really associate him with Tim Burton, where I feel he, like he kind of does the same kind of thing over and over again. You know, there was actually a, a college humour video, I believe, um, about the style of Tim Burton that um, kind of imitated the Danny Elfman score that he does for every 
Burton movie that goes deedly 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 bom 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 and that's kind of what I get in my head whenever I hear the name Danny Elfman now and yet this score is so great it really ties the film together it hits all the emotional beats perfectly it has that kind of jazzy slightly sleazy very 80s sound but not in a way that's obnoxious um, I think that it's a really fantastic score, and for some reason on my previous watches, it just hadn't leapt out at me in quite the same way, and this time when I was really listening to it, I was thinking, damn, that is a great score, and it is a score that I could see myself kind of listening to independently, even though I think that it is so in tune with the emotional beats of the movie, um, and so kind of entwined with the movie, so... I don't know that it exactly works as music in and of itself, but I feel like listening to it, I would be able to relive those beats of the movie in a way that I'd find really satisfying. So uh, yeah, so the score was definitely something that I noticed more this time than on my previous watches. So I'm really glad that I finally rewatched this after maybe a year and a half or more of not having watched it, but having been planning to watch it for my birthday, I finally did it. Um, and it was as great as ever, it was really rewarding, and also kind of a new experience, because I noticed all these new things, I was kind of coming at it with slightly refreshed eyes after a break, and it's, it's such a classic, and such an underrated classic, it's really interesting to me that it just hasn't really lived on in the cultural imagination in the way that something like Die Hard has. And as I say, I love Die Hard. I think Die Hard is great. But I think that this is on a par with Die Hard. And I don't really understand why it is that Die Hard captured people's imagination so much in a way this hadn't. But this film did have a legacy. Um, I've already mentioned, of course, the Rick and Morty episode, Morty Night Run, naturally. But not only that, it actually was a big inspiration for the plot of Toy Story. And I think that you can really see that when you watch the two films side by side, uh, that that Woody and Buzz dynamic uh, really kind of comes from this, and that actually Toy Story is kind of a, a, an action body comedy and that the core relationship certainly in the first movie is between those two men or man toys I don't know uh, I don't know what the correct nomenclature is but between those two characters and that's very much the heart of the movie just as the central relationship is here now it's actually been acknowledged that uh that Midnight Run was an influence on Toy Story. I'm not completely making that up, but I do have a tendency to kind of see Midnight Run everywhere. I have mentioned Starman. I mean, Starman was made four years earlier, so if anything, it would be the other way around. Um, and potentially Starman may have been an influence on this film. I have no evidence one way or the other. Um, there's certainly two films that I think of as being quite similar, and both have this kind of really interesting depiction of these diners and these people who work in in diners and rest stops and things like that 
and they both have an attitude I think they're both kind of wrestling with whether humanity is ultimately good or bad, you know? And that's the kind of um, interplay between the Duke and Walsh, you know? Uh, The Duke says, there's good and bad everywhere, don't you think? And Walsh says, there's bad everywhere, I don't know about good, you know? And then later on, uh, the Duke makes a point of saying that uh, for every shit, there's six nice people. And I think that Starman is kind of also interested in this idea of whether people are fundamentally decent or not, and comes down on the side of people essentially being decent, which I feel like is a lesson we need right now, right? Or I need it. Um, But another movie that I feel may potentially have been an influence on Midnight Run is uh, The Red Circle by Jean-Pierre Melville, which I saw a few months ago. And certainly there's a scene um, with a prisoner on a train in that movie, and I thought, oh man, was this an influence on Midnight Run? I have no idea, but certainly I felt like I saw a link there. But again, I kind of see Midnight Run everywhere, so it might just be entirely in my head. But I'm not the only person who's obsessed with Midnight Run, I'm actually in very good company. Uh, There's Adam Scott, whom I've mentioned. There's also Alan Seppamore, the TV critic. This is his favourite movie. He talks about it all the time. I'm a big fan of Alan's. I have been ever since he was doing write-ups of Mad Men episodes. uh, I think just on his personal blog. So uh, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, And even De Niro himself uh, hasn't let go of the movie, or at least he hadn't eight years ago, uh, when he said that he was developing a sequel. He was working on a script where he he helped out the Groding character's son, which, I don't know, like, Jack Walsh has a daughter in the original movie, but in the sequel, they want to make the Groding character, the Duke, have a son who was never mentioned in the original, who just kind of appears like Shia LaBeouf in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and uh, becomes the new Charles Grodin. I mean, come on, man. Like, you had a daughter in the original movie. Make her one of the main characters. Anyway, that was many years ago, so it seems like that project has probably been abandoned, which is a shame, because I'd watch it. Although, maybe it's not a shame, because it may well tarnish the original. Though there were already TV sequels, which I haven't seen because they're not available in this country, very sadly. But anyway, I guess if my love of this film has taught me anything, it's that I am a Jerry, and that's okay. Thank you so much for joining me on my birthday and on Bobby's for this Midnight Run rewatch. As always, I will have links to my socials as well as any 
articles I've mentioned etc down in the description so do feel free to follow me on Panicky Pictures on Twitter or Panicky in the UK on Letterboxd I'm mostly working my way through everything on movie uh, the day that it expires so right now that's mostly South American documentaries uh, so if you're interested in that then come and check out my write-ups I will be doing an episode about Showgirls in about a month to celebrate the 25th anniversary of its premiere. I'm a big Showgirls fan, so please do get in touch if you are too. And if you have an Anchor account, you can always leave me a voice message. And the link, again, should be in the description. Take care. I'll see you in the next life. <laughs>